Good morning. My name is Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, take it and turn to Mark chapter 12. We're in a series in the Gospel of Mark. If you don't have a Bible, uh, that's all right. We have Bibles for you back on the round tables. You can get up now while I'm talking um, because everyone's distracted at this point and grab a Bible. And if you don't know where Mark is, there's a table of contents for you in the front of your Bible. Uh, we all start somewhere. There's also page numbers for you in your bulletin. Well, as you were turning there, I'm, I was thinking uh, this week about the phenomenon that over the last five or so years, you know, a couple books came out about kids who allegedly went to heaven and came back. Right? One of them was called Heaven is for Real, very popular, and there was a movie made about it. Another one was something like The Boy Who Went to Heaven and Came Back. It had a very, um, a very creative title. And uh, one of them recanted and it got pulled back. But the thing that I found like, really fascinating about these books is they were everywhere. Now, when I say everywhere, I mean everywhere. I mean, I was at the gym on the elliptical machine. Yes, sometimes you'll find me there. And next to me was someone reading Heaven is for Real. And then down a couple more, there was someone else reading it. And then I walk along State Street, and I see the movie poster in um, advertising the movie that's coming out. And, and it just made me think, you know, we, we have a curiosity, a fascination. What's life going to be like after death? Right? I remember preaching on Jonah and the last, the last verse of Jonah, when God talks about how he has pity on Nineveh, and one of the reasons he has pity on Nineveh is because they have so many people and many cattle. And I talked about God's love and his care for animals and creation, and, 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 and inevitably someone came up to me afterwards and they wanted to know, will my cat be in heaven? Many of you have wanted to know that. Not cats, not dogs, but my cat. And I get it. I understand the question. Behind these questions, I think, is the question, what are our relationships going to be like in heaven? And will I be satisfied there? Will I be satisfied with those relationships? That's the question that is raised by this passage in Mark chapter 12. Hear God's word. And the Sadducees came to him, that is Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow, and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third, likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection... When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. 
Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we ask that as we open your word and attend to it, that you, as you promised, would bring with it your saving presence. Because that's what we need. That's what all any of us need. That's what we all need this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Elizabeth met Jim when they were in college, and they married some years later. In Ecuador, it was 1953, but the marriage was short-lived because three years after that, Jim died. Jim Elliott was killed by the people to whom he was ministering the gospel. It was 16 years later before Elizabeth Elliot would marry again, this time to a seminary professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. His name was Addison, I think, Light. I don't know how you pronounce it. Uh, if her first marriage was short-lived and tragic, the second one didn't fare much better. It was only four years after they were married that he died. They had boarders living with them from the seminary. One of those boarders ended up marrying um, their daughter. Another of those boarders, Lars Grin, married Elizabeth. They had 38 happy years together. And then she died. At the resurrection... Whose husband will Elizabeth Elliot's be? Who will be her spouse? Some of you have been married more than once. At the resurrection, who will be your spouse? That's the question that the Pharisees ask. In verses 18 through 23, they come up, uh, not the Pharisees, the Sadducees rather. Uh, in verses 18 through 23, they come up to Jesus, these religious leaders, and they, they pose to him a scenario. It's actually, what we, from what we know, a true scenario because it's also recorded in this ancient book called Tobit. There was this woman, and she had uh, a husband, and the husband died. And there's this um, law in the book of Mo uh, law in the Old Testament that we're not going to talk about that basically said that she had to uh, the brother-in-law, her brother-in-law, had to marry her. So he married her, and uh, and then they didn't have kids, and he died. And then the other brother had to marry her, 
and he married her, and he didn't uh, have any kids with her, and he died. And then at one point, I wondered, did the brothers go, wait a second. <laughs> I mean, did they all die the same way? <laughs> Was it burnt toast? Well, anyway, she has seven, and then, tragically, it says that she dies. And so the Sadducees, they want to know, verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? Or do they? Do they really want to know? Because Mark lets us in on a little something in verse 18. The Sadducees, uh, they don't believe in the resurrection. They think that that's a later idea. A new, fresh, innovative doctrine concocted by the later prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel. It's not in the five books of Moses which they accept. And besides, if people start believing in resurrection, then they might, I don't know, start doing radical, crazy things for God. And, and that, would, that might incite a revolution. See, they were the traditionalists, the conservatives... They were the ruling class, and they didn't want to upset the peace, and so they don't actually believe in the resurrection, and yet they come with Jesus to this question, with this question about the resurrection, which suggests that their question is absolutely insincere. They're not asking to find out an answer. They're asking to make Jesus look foolish and show the idea about resurrection to be nonsensical. What about you? When you come with questions, do you really want an answer? Many of you have been coming to church for some time. Uh, you're investigating Christianity and you haven't crossed the threshold. And, and you say that there are these questions, these intellectual hang-ups that you have that keep you from crossing the threshold. I want you to know that this is a place where you can come and ask your questions, your honest questions. And I want you to know that there's a lot of space for you to come figure that out. Some of you have, have been wrestling with Christianity. You consider yourself a Christian, but traditional Christian teachings, you have a hard time with them. Traditional Christian ethics you have a hard time with. Things like traditional Christian teaching on sexuality or the doctrine of hell. And you have questions about what happens to the fate of unbelievers. And you're wrestling. And you wrestle with questions about membership because you're untrustworthy of institutions. And you wrestle. I want you to know that this is a place where you can ask your questions. And this is a place where you can wrestle. I want this to be a place where you can ask your questions and where you can wrestle. Others of you have been here for a long time. You're longtime members, regular tenders of this church. And you have questions. You have questions about changes that are made or the way that we do things. I want this to be a place for you to come and ask your questions. And to seek to find answers. But my question for you is, 
when you ask those questions, no matter which group you're in, do you really want an answer? Or like the Sadducees, are you using your questions to hold Jesus at bay and to keep him from exercising authority over your life or a part of your life? In other words, are you actually investigating the questions? Are you reading and researching? Are you serious about it? Or is it just something that you pose so that you can, as a deflection tactic, so you really don't have to engage? See, that's, that's the question I have for you. Like, if you really want to know about the crimes of Christianity, then, then you need to start reading the Gospels and reading the Bible and reading some books. I've got lots for you. I will read them with you. I will have coffee with you and discuss them. If you have questions about gender roles or sexual ethics or practice of church, I have lots of books for you. And I'm happy to talk with you and sit and drink coffee. But are you willing to investigate those and are you open to having an answer? Because if you really don't want an answer, you probably won't get one. And if you've already convinced yourself in your mind that it's silly and that there is no plausible answer, then you probably won't hear it. Like the Sadducees. The Sadducees have this insincere question. Uh, they aren't seeking truth. But, but their question, it not only comes from this place of insincerity, it also betrays this basic ignorance about the doctrine of the resurrection. You know, anytime you disagree with something, you should have a good idea of what it is you're disagreeing with. You should actually understand the thing. But the Pharisees and what they're saying, the Sadducees and what they're saying, sorry, the Sadducees appear like twice in the Bible. The Pharisees are everywhere. So I'm going to make that mistake a lot this morning. You can just substitute. That's what I have to do when I'm typing my sermon. I just do a word search and I do a replace. Replace and find. So we're going to do a congregation-wide replace and find. Got it? All right, the filter's set. We're going to keep going. Um, the question, it, it betrays this basic ignorance because what they assume is they assume that, that the doctrine of the resurrection teaches that basically life as we know it simply goes on and on and on. And what happens is at the resurrection, the quality of life that we experience now is the same quality of life that will exist then. In other words, we are resuscitated. It's an old uh, way of, it's another way of saying that, that we are revived to a similar quality of life. And in that quality of life, if the quality of life is the same, and if marriage is the same, and if our bodies are the same, and if everything's the same, then they have a question, whose wife will she be? And that makes sense. But what they don't understand is that that's actually not what the doctrine of the resurrection teaches. It's not life as we know it that keeps going on and on and on. And in fact, some of you, maybe, you're not really excited about the resurrection, and the resurrection doesn't have a, a healing balm for your wounds. Because the life that you experience is full of pain and loneliness and sorrow. And I think, well, well, I don't want to keep going. I want to keep on in that existence. But that's not what... The doctrine of the resurrection is all about. And so in verse 25, Jesus, he, he corrects their misunderstanding. He says, 
when people rise from the dead, their existence will not be the same as it is right now. Life as we know it is not what you enter into. You, life, you enter into a quality of life that we have hitherto for never seen. He says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. He's saying, they're neither married nor given in marriage, which is very different than life as we know it right now. Isn't it? Marriage is one of the fundamental things in Genesis. And he's saying they neither marry nor given in marriage, but are like the angels, and they misunderstand this. And so their question betrays this ignorance. You know, I don't think, though, that we can be too hard on them because there are a lot of misunderstandings about the resurrection. There are a lot of misunderstandings about the resurrection today. I think most of the time we think of resurrection, we use that term, and we kind of think uh, resurrection is this nice idea of talking about someone going on after they die, right? And I think this kind of idea can be perpetuated um, even, uh, unfortunately, by lots of, by lots of um, well-meaning preachers at funerals. I was once at this funeral, and the person who, uh, was, um, whose life people were uh, remembering, giving thanks for, and grieving over, uh, well, this person uh, used to love to hike. And people talked about how they loved to hike, and they showed pictures of them hiking. And, um, but toward the end of their life, they weren't able to go hike. They couldn't hike Yosemite. They couldn't camp out. They couldn't do these things that they loved. And so then um, someone said, uh, I can just picture, we'll call him Dale. I can just picture Dale now hiking mountains and hiking la Mount Kilimanjaro. And it was, it was a beautiful thought. Billy Graham passed away earlier this spring. And I heard someone say, um, Billy Graham now sees with, the, uh, with, eyes of, with eyes of sight and not with eyes of faith. But here's my question. With what eyes does Billy Graham see? And with what legs does Dale climb the mountains? If the resurrection of the dead means anything, it means that actually God will reconstitute our bodies from this earth. And until he does that, we do not have bodies or eyes or legs. And so if they're already hiking and already seeing, then what good is the resurrection of the dead? See, it becomes this kind of term of like, they're off doing great things someplace, somewhere. But that's definitively not what Christians confess when they say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting. When we say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, what we are saying is not that there is some existence after death, which everyone in the ancient world believed. What we are saying is, no, God will reconstitute my body from the stuff of the earth, and in my flesh I will see the Lord. And we'll behold him and worship him and live. This is our hope. This is what, this is what Jesus is, is talking about. But you say, well, 
well, wait a second. I mean, Jesus does say we'll be like the angels, verse 25. When I was growing up and I heard about heaven I, and, and what heaven was going to be like, I had this picture, and this picture was mainly like of a disembodied existence which somehow was able to don a gown uh, where I would perpetually sing in perpetually stiff posture. And I thought, that doesn't really sound great. Not to me. I mean, the alternative, yeah, it's better than that. But that does not sound <laughs> great, right? And so, like, I, I related to that Kidney Chesney song, right? Not, I don't listen to Kidney Chesney, but you have told me about the lyrics. <laughs> uh, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now, right? Uh, and, and I got that. Uh, because it's like, who, who wants to sit and in a perpetually perfect posture, singing all the time, in the kind of disembodied cloud-like existence. And so, and so there are lots of misunderstandings about, about this life. But Jesus says we'll be like the angels, and who wants that? I mean, Really? But Jesus says we'll be like the angels in this one respect. That we will neither marry nor are given in marriage. See, what Jesus is saying is that the covenant of marriage is till death do us part. It's lifelong. But death ends the covenant of marriage. And then that covenant does not go on. And in that way, we will be like the angels but who wants that? I mean, for many of us, those of us who've experienced good, rich marriages, that's a very sad thought. Is it not? And for others of us, those who have never experienced a good, meaningful, rich marriage, that's a very tragic thought. And she died. I um, had a good friend in high school who went off to college and he fell in love with a girl and he was about to propose to her. He was making arrangements to purchase the ring. He had been saving up. And as he was making those arrangements to purchase the ring, one night he gets a call and he finds out that his longtime girlfriend had been hit by a drunk driver, tragically killed. And he grieved. He grieved in my arms. He's now married. And we don't keep up too much, but I'm sure he, he seems to have a, a lovely marriage. But what happens to that former relationship? And what about, what about that girl? The girl he loved who never got to experience marriage. The story is told about Teresa. She was 27 years old and in love. But she was also very sick. She was dying of cancer. One day she told her nurse, Sandy, that she decided to marry And so Sandy said, okay, well, that makes sense. 
And so Sandy talked to the chaplain at the hospital, and they make the arrangements, and, and, the, and the hospital room was decorated. And Sandy said, hey, I have a wedding dress, and it would fit you. It's, it's your size. And Teresa said, okay. And just before the day, Sandy came in, and she said, Teresa, Teresa. And she didn't respond. Sandy came over to Teresa, and Teresa just smiled up at her, and she was gone. Why then? They made arrangements for the funeral, and the boyfriend and the mom called Sandy and said, come to the funeral. And after thinking about it, Sandy said, okay. And Sandy said, well, what will she be wearing? And they said, well, we don't know. None of her clothes fit anymore. What do you think? You might want to dress her in my wedding dress. She was going to wear it, and it'd still fit her. And so Teresa was buried in a creamy white wedding dress. And we think, what a shame. Because she then entered into that existence where people neither marry nor are given in marriage. And we think, what a loss. Or is it? Or is it? Maybe if we think that that's a shame and that's a loss, maybe we don't understand something about the scriptures. And maybe it's because we don't understand something about the power of God. Like the, fair, like the Sadducees didn't understand something about the scriptures and something about the power of God. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Of God. See, the Sadducees' biggest problem was not insincerity. And, and the Sadducees' biggest problem was not ignorance of, uh, of the scriptures that they, of the latter prophets and the fact that they didn't accept them. The, the Sadducees' biggest problem was not ignorance about the resurrection. No, the Sadducees' biggest problem is that they knew experientially, I'm sorry, they did not know the scriptures nor the power of God. They couldn't conceive of God doing something beyond their imaginations. They couldn't conceive of something being true beyond what they could work out logically in their heads. They couldn't conceive of God fulfilling a promise for which they couldn't make heads of tails of how he was going to fulfill it. And so Jesus takes them to this passage in the book of Moses, a passage which they accepted. Verse 26, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? In the passage about the bush. I love that. I love that Jesus doesn't say, like, here's the verse and here's the reference. Like, you know, the passage about the bush. Because I'm like, that makes, that, that, that makes me feel a lot better. Like in Presbytery, when people ask me questions, I'm like, you know, the passage about the bush. <laughs> General enough, right? You know the one I'm talking about. Well, you know, the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now we look at this and we think, what on earth does this have to do with the resurrection? Or Jesus' point? Only everything. See, because what 
what Jesus is pointing out is that when, when God spoke these words to Moses, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they were long gone. And yet, God had made a covenant with them, a promise, and that promise was to be their God, to protect them, to preserve them, that they would live in the land, to give them the land, and to be their God, and that they would be his people forever. And the question is, how is that going to happen? But by resurrection. See, what what Jesus is pointing out is that This God is a God who makes a promise, and his promise, it makes a way out of no way. That God's commitment always reaches its purpose, even when there are no means to get to the ends. That, That means are not a barrier to God fulfilling his purposes and his promises in our lives. You know, life is full of a lot of gray. And the more I live, the more I realize that there are a lot of loose ends that I just don't understand. Life is filled with a lot of loss. Loss of potential. Loss of possession. Loss of potential relationships. Loss of the possession of relationships. Loss of jobs and career, fulfilling and satisfying, that would seem to provide a fulfilling and satisfying life. Loss of potential children. Loss of possessed children. Life is filled with a lot of loss and a lot of gray and a lot of unmet desires. And I look at that loss and I say, God, how? It it reminds me of Miles Roby in the novel Empire Falls. Miles Roby is a middle-aged 42-year-old who works at a diner. He grew up in a blue-collar family with an absentee dad. He finally made it out of his small-town Maine blue-collar life to go to college. He was smart. And he enjoyed, was passionate about the subject he was studying. But his mother contracted cancer, and so he came back to be with her. He dropped out of school, and then she died. He lost his mother. But he also lost his opportunity for college. He ended up working at a diner the rest of his life. He also lost the girl that he loved because when he finally got the courage to ask Charlene out, she ran outside and got on her, the back of her boyfriend's motorcycle. And then he lost the only wife he did have to another guy in town. And then he lost... He lost this... This idea that he could have been a better husband when he realized in, the, in this grief of his, his wife when he realized that, that she was unhappy in that relationship as well. And you listen to this guy's story and it's just like one disappointing loss after another, after another, after another. And 
a lot of life. And when we listen to a story like that, when we reflect on our lives, we ask the question, how can God fulfill his promise? But when we ask that question, maybe it's because we know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And maybe when we hear that people are neither married nor given in marriage, we, we assume that it's going to be a lonely and boring existence. But that's because maybe we neither know scriptures nor the power of God nor what it promises. C.S. Lewis once talking about the fact that there, it seems to be that there won't be sexual experiences as we know it here on earth. He talks about that and he says, we then uh, come to two conclusions. This reduces our imagination to, to these withering alternatives of either bodies, which are hardly recognizable as human bodies at all, talked about that, or else that heaven is basically this perpetual fast from any kind of fulfillment of desire as we know it. And that's why we think, well, I don't know about that. I don't know about heaven. But Lewis says that, that when, we address, when we view the topic like that, he says we're like a small boy who being, uh, on being told that, that sex is the highest bodily pleasure immediately asks whether or not you eat chocolates at the same time. And on receiving the answer, no... You don't. He then regards the absence of chocolates as the chief characteristic of sex because he thinks, well, he knows chocolate. And the only thing that, what he doesn't know is the positive thing that chocolate excludes. Now, I don't like chocolate, but, and I'm not sure that that sex excludes it. However, the point is, is that, that if you try to explain that there's something better, but you don't have categories for it, that the desire is fulfilled, but it's fulfilled in a different way, which you don't even have categories for, then, then that's what it's like when we hear that there's no marriage. That's what we hear, it's like, and we ask, God, can you really keep your promise? Can you really fulfill your covenant, the covenant he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to protect us and preserve us, to be with us and to be with our God, to give us a people and to satisfy the desires of our souls. You know, his promise is a covenant. And that covenant fulfills its ends. It's like a covenant. It's like a covenant, like marriage is a covenant. You know, people say there will be no marriage in heaven, but Jesus didn't actually say that. You do realize that, right? Read closely. They will neither be given in marriage nor marry. But it doesn't say that there is no marriage. Because because the two shall become one flesh, Paul says. This mystery is profound, but I'm saying it belongs to Christ and the church. And Isaiah 62 says that as a young man marries a virgin, so your son shall marry you, Israel. And as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over 
you. And heaven in the book of Revelation is actually described as a marriage feast. And communion is a foretaste of that reality in which we will enter into intimate fellowship with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And so maybe, maybe there's no marriage, not because there's something that's inferior to marriage, but because there's something that's better than marriage. Or maybe even better, what we know now is simply pretend. Maybe there's no marriage on earth. Maybe none of us know what marriage is. And the real marriage is the marriage that we're all waiting for and that we're all anticipating. And maybe when we get to heaven, we will say to our spouses, thank you for the ways in which you prepared me for something that was way beyond anything I could ever ask or imagined. And maybe we will enter into relationships of intimacy with one another and with the Lord that we can't even conceive of here because of our limitations in this sinful world. Maybe all we're experiencing now is the shadows, but that that belongs to the substance. And any glory that we experience now in the shadows, well, how much more glorious will the substance be? And maybe a single woman getting buried in a wedding dress is not a tragedy at all, but the most appropriate attire than one could think of. Because that was her wedding day. And that's the gospel. That our maker is our husband and our redeemer is our God. And what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means is that God provides a way out of no way, that he ties up loose ends where we could not imagine them being tied up, and that he will satisfy the desires of our hearts, each and every one of them. He will repair the years that the locusts have eaten, even when we can't imagine how he's going to do it. And so when you confess, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting, that is not a silly hope. But that is based on the promise of God and the power of God. And even when you can't understand it, you can take it to the bank. You can die with it and rise again forever with it. Amen.